how many steps on water must he take? And how many jugs of wine did he need to make? And how many stories of heaven must he tell? How many women must he meet at the well? And I fell down in need of prayer. Lord, how many crosses can you bear? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins, the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Christ is risen indeed. He is risen. We rejoice today with all Christians all over the world in the resurrection of our Lord on this Easter Sunday. Peter And John hear about the empty tomb from Mary Magdalene. And they rush out to see what she reported. They rush out to see it for themselves. And in our prayer too, we want to make haste. We want to make haste to open ourselves to this mystery. We want to be eager to take advantage of this great feast. The greatest feast in the whole history of the world. In the whole liturgy of the church. So Peter and the other disciple went out and came to the tomb. They both ran, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and arrived at the tomb first. He bent down and saw the burial clothes there, but did not go in. When Simon Peter arrived after him, he went into the tomb and saw the burial clothes there and the cloth that had covered his head, not with the burial cloths, but rolled up in a separate place. Then the other disciple also went in, the one who had arrived at the tomb first, And he saw and believed. Lord, we too, today in our prayer, in the Mass, in our celebration of Easter, want to see and believe. I believe, Lord, in your resurrection. I believe that you died on Good Friday on the cross, that you were buried, and that you resurrected today on Easter Sunday. The resurrection is the story of Christ's great victory over Satan. In a certain sense, the whole gospel is a battle. The whole gospel is a struggle between God in Jesus Christ and Satan, the cause of evil in the world. And so we see right in the beginning of our Lord's public life that he goes out into the wilderness to let the devil come to him, to let the devil challenge him, to test him, to tempt him. And our Lord, as we saw right in the beginning of Lent, we have this passage in in the Mass. As we saw there, our Lord offers stiff resistance to the devil. He counters every blow. And the devil's not sure yet if he's the Redeemer, if he's the Son of God. But he knows that Jesus is very holy, and so he wants to attack him. He wants to attack him, try to corrupt him, limit the good that he can do in the world. The Gospel of Luke says this, When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. It's kind of foreboding, a foreboding foreshadowing of the passion the devil leaves from testing him from attacking him until an opportune time and lord we know the opportune time came in your passion 
the opportune time started with your rest and follow through in the passion. This is from the Gospel of Luke, describing the arrest of Jesus. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and captains of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber, with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour, and the power of darkness. This is your hour and the power of darkness. The passion is the hour, paradoxically, of Satan. Christ's greatest victory comes when he gives Satan the most power over him. And we see that the devil unleashes a great fury against Christ's goodness on the cross and in the passion. The devil gives Jesus his very best shot. He unleashes all the fury, all the cruelty that he can against the person of Jesus. And it does great damage in Christ, and Christ dies. And in that moment, before the devil realizes that, that the joke is on him, that Jesus is taking all of that anger, all of that fury, all of that hatred, and responding with power, but with a power that works through mercy and kindness and acceptance, willingness to suffer for others. Jesus takes all that energy of Satan, all that diabolical, negative, hateful energy, and through mercy, through the switch of mercy, turns it into love and redemption. And the proof of this is the resurrection. Jesus is back and he's alive and he's well. He's won. What a tremendous turnaround. What a drastic change from death to life, from defeat to absolute victory. A few years ago, there was a, a dramatic boxing match that I happened to uh, that I happened to see. It was Tyson Fury, who's a who's a British boxer, against an American named Deontay Wilder. And Deontay Wilder was the champion at the time, the heavyweight champion. And Tyson Fury was the number one challenger. And they had a very close match, but Tyson Fury was was uh, just a little bit ahead of him in the points until the 12th round. And in the 12th round, Deontay Wilder, who's a great puncher, uh, a boxer with great power, caught Tyson Fury with a very hard right hand, right in his ear. Bam! And you see Tyson Fury start to fall down. You can see the whole thing in slow motion. It's pretty spectacular on uh, on YouTube. He starts to fall down. And on the way down, Deontay Wilder catches him with with the other hand, with the left hook. Bam! Hits him really hard. And so Tyson's head snaps back the other way. And then Tyson hits the mat and and he, he just goes down like like a sack of potatoes, you know, just lifeless. And his head whips back, bam, and hits the, <laughs> and hits the canvas. So in about 1.5 seconds, he's taken three very hard shots to the head. The right hand, the left hand on his way down. And then his head whips back and hits the and hits the hits the ring, and it was a very dramatic moment because the announcers and the crowd thought, "This is it." He just knocked him out, even though Tyson was winning the whole match. Deontay Wilder has pulled this match um, pulled this match out by knocking him out dramatically in the middle of the of the of the last round of the twelfth round of the fight. But then something totally unexpected happens. Tyson Fury is on the mat. His eyes, you know, are kind of open. They look totally glazed. The ref is is 
leaning over him, counting him out. And then he just kind of like shakes it off, you know, opens his eyes and gets up and proceeds to fight the rest of the round. And eventually the fight is called a draw. It was so surprising. Deontay Wilder hit him so hard and saw him go down so hard that he was actually dancing. He was doing a celebratory dance while Tyson Fury was being counted out. And then when he got up, everyone was everyone was shocked. Well, this is a kind of um, uh, worldly example, of course. <laughs> but uh, but this is our Lord. Our Lord was out cold, literally cold. He was dead. The devil had done everything he could. He had thrown everything at him. He had hit him with his absolute best shot. And our Lord was dead in the tomb. And then sometime this morning, sometime late last night, our Lord came back to life. And he wasn't just resuscitated. He wasn't raised as he raised Lazarus, just putting his soul back into his body. Or raised as he raised that young girl who had died, or that young boy who had died, the, the only son of a widow in the gospel. Our Lord comes back transformed. Our Lord comes back in a glorious state, with a resurrected body, with a body that can do things that no other body can do, that can give itself to us in the Eucharist, that can pass through walls, that can appear to St. Paul, that can that can keep itself from being discovered at times. People are with him. They don't realize it's him. And that can then reveal itself to them when he, when he sees fit. Our Lord's resurrected body is new, eternal, different, transformed, spiritualized. This is the total victory of Christ, the victory over sin, the victory over death. The proof, Lord, of your victory is the resurrection. The proof of your divinity is the resurrection. Alleluia, we sing today, the great hymn of praise. Alleluia, alleluia. Lord, help us to believe this. It makes all the difference in our faith to believe that our Lord is truly, is truly resurrected. And to believe that it's it's a historical fact. This isn't just a kind of uh, spiritual reality that we can kind of tap into, and there's a story attached to it so we can understand it. Right? That's how the ancient mythical religions used to work. There'd be some important spiritual or human truth that they saw, like the power of love or the power of war, and then they would they would come up with mythical stories to explain that that human and spiritual reality that's human and spiritual power and then they would personify it as a god and so we don't want to go to war so we have to appease mars the god of war or we we want to win the war so we want to incite mars and get mars the god of war on our side but there was no person mars all right i mean it's a complicated thing what leads men to war and when a spirit of war seizes a nation or a people but it wasn't a personal god it was a false god this is not what happens with our faith. Jesus Christ was a historical figure. Not just ancient Christian authors, but ancient non-Christian authors testify in their histories, in their objective histories, to the existence of Jesus Christ, who they describe as a preacher and a miracle worker, and who they say was killed. And 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 his his believers go further and say, not only was he killed, but we saw him resurrected. We saw him alive. And the anti-Christians in the ancient world didn't like directly dispute that claim that much. Obviously, they didn't believe it. 
But it wasn't like they can go and find the tomb and dig up Jesus's body and say, look, you dummies, <laughs> he didn't resurrect, right? Here's his body. There wasn't this huge thing like, oh, and they also like really stupidly believed that he was alive. No, they just admit, yeah, and they say, they say he was resurrected from the dead. And then they attack Christianity mostly on other grounds. And the Gospels and the letters of St. Paul are witnesses, are written testimonies which witness to the first Christian's belief in the resurrection. It's a, these are historical documents. St. Paul was a real person writing to real people. This is what he writes to the Corinthians. Lord, in your presence, help us to help us to deepen our faith. Help us to resurrect our faith, to make my faith in you new again on this Easter Sunday. St. Paul writes to the Corinthians, For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised in the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, St. Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to someone untimely born. He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me has not been in vain. St. Paul, a witness to the resurrection, lists all these other witnesses. Peter and the other apostles in this group of 500 disciples, they all are witnesses. They claim to have seen Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a historical figure who lived and preached and worked wonders and died on the cross. The same people who knew him said, we saw him back. We saw him alive. And so many of them. This is the faith of the church. This is the faith, Lord, that we've received in an unbroken chain from you, from what you did and what you taught through everyone else who's believed, starting with those first apostles and those that first group of disciples, all the way down through the centuries to me and you and your family and your friends, all the Christians who exist today in our world were links in the chain of the handing down of these events, the handing down of these mysteries of God made man, his life, his death, and his resurrection from the dead, which we celebrate on Easter Sunday. Easter is such a wonderful feast that the church celebrates Easter Sunday for eight days and then the Easter season for 50 days in its entirety through through the Feast of Pentecost. I remember I was in I was in a restaurant a number of years ago on Easter Tuesday, the Tuesday of the of the Easter octave with a friend and the waitress was it was a younger girl she was probably in her 20s. And she saw that I was a priest and she said, Father, happy Tuesday after Easter. And so I have this pet peeve, which is to explain to people, you know, liturgical things, especially this Easter thing. And so I said to her, oh, well, thank you. And and I said, actually, you know, Easter day is an octave. And so it's still Easter, technically. Um, and Easter season lasts for 50 days. So you could say Happy Easter instead of Happy 
Tuesday after Easter. And she looked at me and she said, oh no, Father. And I said, what? What's wrong? And she said, I can't eat that much chocolate. About a week later, I was entering the school where I work. And um, there's a very nice lady, wonderful lady, uh, who's a receptionist there. And I hadn't seen her since Easter had started because we had Easter week off as a kind of spring break, Easter break. And so I walked in and I made the point of saying to her on this on this second week of Easter, Happy Easter. And she's, you know, she's probably in her late 60s, early 70s, something like that. And she said to me, oh, yes, Father, you know, I just, I just learned that Easter lasts 50 days. And I said, yeah, that's right. That's why we can say Happy Easter. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? It lasts 50 days. And she said to me, yeah, it's fantastic. I can eat, I can eat chocolate the whole time. So here you see the, a little bit of distinction between the wisdom of our elders, the wisdom of the baby boomers, against the um, uh, lack of wisdom, let's call it, of the uh, of the millennials uh, who are probably a little too concerned about their health and and maybe also their <laughs> their appearance. Isn't it great? We can celebrate Easter this whole week, and we can celebrate Easter the whole season, isn't it? Isn't it great? And what are we celebrating except this great victory? Christ is victorious on the cross because he seals that victory with the resurrection. St. Josemaria used to say, God doesn't lose battles. God doesn't lose battles. It may seem like he's entirely lost, but he hasn't lost. And so no matter where we are in our life, no matter where we are in our spiritual life, in our moral life, in our personal life, God doesn't lose battles. There's a way of connecting that to God. There's a way of making it pleasing to God. There's a way of drawing spiritual benefit from it. There's a way of being okay in it, no matter what our situation is. Because God doesn't lose battles, and God is totally on our side. And Jesus is alive, and and just as powerful as he was when he walked this earth. The resurrection is permanent. It's a permanent feast. Christ, once victorious over sin and death, is always victorious over sin and death. St. Paul makes this point to the Romans. What then are we to say about this? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus, your love is invincible. Your love is undefeated. Your love can't be stopped. Who will separate us? What will separate us from the love of Christ? And the short answer is nothing. Not even my sinfulness? No, not even my sinfulness, provided that 
provided that I always turn to God in my sinfulness and admit it and ask Him for mercy. The only thing that can stop us is our unwillingness to ask for mercy, our unwillingness to show God ourselves as we are and to, and to use the means that He's offering us. God does not lose battles. If He is for us, who is against us? And the battles that He wants to win for us are precisely the battles that are the most important. The battle against our sinfulness, the battle for holiness, the battle for virtue and charity, the battle to have more hope and more faith in Him. God does not lose battles, but but in order to have Him winning these battles for us, they have to be the right battles. They have to be the battles that, that really matter, the ones that He wants us to fight. The battle of living our faith, the battle of spreading our faith, the battle of creating a more just order on this earth, the battle of recognizing our sins and turning away from them, the battle of conversion. These are the battles that Jesus always helps us win. The battle perhaps of going through a longer period of purification, of confusion, of growth, which are, which are difficult to go through. But even then, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the resurrection, the invincibility of God. You'll excuse me for using another sports analogy. I have a very good friend who I respect a lot, his opinion, and he, he warns me in my preaching against using too many um, sports <laughs> sports analogies. He says it makes you seem... Um, uh, I don't know. I don't know what his problem is, but anyway, uh, some people don't like sports, and and so therefore you can kind of alienate some of your audience if you use too many of these analogies. But what are you going to do? So um, a number of years ago, not too many, but I don't know, three or four years ago, the Patriots went to the Super Bowl against the Atlanta Falcons, and they were they were uh, losing in the third quarter. There's about eight and a half minutes left in the third quarter. And they were down 28 to three, almost four touchdowns, 28 to three. And so it looked totally desperate. And there's a documentary in which, um, in which they had certain players mic'd up. They were recording the players' reactions and interactions during the game. And at this point, they caught they caught one player, a defensive player named uh, Dante Hightower, very good linebacker, who was trying to encourage his teammates not to give up. We're down 28-3, but let's keep fighting. And the way he did this, what he said was simply, come on, guys, we've got Tom Brady. Come on, guys, we've got Tom Brady. Or something to that effect. But the message was simply like, look, we're still in this because of our quarterback, because of Tom Brady. And sure enough, Tom Brady and uh, the rest of the Patriots, but Tom Brady leading them, they had this incredible comeback. They tie the game in the last few uh, seconds, and they win the game in overtime. And then this year, Tom Brady uh, left the Patriots to the chagrin of, of many fans in the area I live in, and here in the Boston area. And went to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay Buccaneers hadn't won a Super Bowl in about 20 years, if I'm not mistaken. And in their history, they're one of the worst franchises ever. 
more, you know, they lose more than anyone, historically speaking. And so they sign Tom Brady, and what happens? They win the Super Bowl, right? They won the Super Bowl this this year. Uh, we got Tom Brady, right? Um, what's the moral of the story? Well, it's not that Tom Brady is God, right, or that Tom Brady is Jesus. He's actually he's lost a lot. He has lost um, more Super Bowls than any other quarterback except one, who's Jim Kelly, who lost four Super Bowls in a row for the Buffalo Bills. Incredible feat of uh, of failure and disappointment to lose four Super Bowls in a row. So if you meet people from Buffalo and they're a little bit um, bitter or uh, cynical or without hope, it might be because they're Buffalo Bill fans and they remember that stretch of uh, of utter disappointment. But that sentiment, we have Tom Brady. As Christians, we have to have that in spades, right? Okay, we're down by a lot. I just sinned. The world is messed up. We don't know what to do. But don't worry. We have Christ. Christ is alive. Indeed, he is risen. He's not going anywhere. He turns death into life. He turns evil into goodness with that switch of forgiveness, with that switch of mercy. All we have to do is tap into that and do our best to put good effort into letting him live his life in us into letting that Paschal mystery fully develop in our life. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is the Christian life. That the sacraments open up the Paschal mystery, the dying to sin, the death from sin, and the rising to new life in Christ. It, the sacraments open it up to every believer. What really matters for a Christian, what really matters in life, is that we let this have its full effect in our life. Voluntarily to get on board. To get on board in dying to sin, fighting against our sinfulness, taking those shots of Satan like our Lord, but resisting them, turning them turning them into love and mercy, and then walking in newness of life, increasing our faith, increasing our hope, and increasing especially our charity, those things that make us divine, that make us like you, Lord. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The radical transformation from death to life, from sin to holiness, is a transformation that we don't just see in Christ, but that Christ wants to bring about in us. So we can ask ourselves, Lord, in your presence, where's the newness of life that you expect? Where's the resurrection in my life? What needs, Lord, in my life to come back to life? What needs, Lord, in my life to be put to death? Maybe I need to be, maybe I need to put to death a little bit of my cynicism. Or maybe I need to put to death a little bit of my uh, criticism of people who I don't like or who disappoint me in one way or another. Maybe I need to put to death some sinful habit, Lord, that, that keeps me from trusting you more, loving you more. Lord, am I dependent on some substance or some entertainment or some habit that is a lack of trust in you? 
and and traps me in a kind of selfish and destructive cycle. Maybe, Lord, I need to put to death my laziness. I just, <laughs> I'm just not up for the struggle to be good, the struggle to, to live as a Christian. And what needs, Lord, to come to life? Perhaps my prayer life, Lord. Perhaps in Easter you can give me a greater sense that you're real, that you're alive, that you're with me. Your presence, a personal presence, someone who loves me, my friend, my Lord, my teacher, my master. You're real, Lord. You're with me. Easter can bring to life my prayer life. Perhaps it can bring to life my my sense of being an apostle. That I too, like St. Saint, like Saint Paul, like St. Peter, like the rest of the apostles, early Christians, am called not just to live this, but to spread it. A faith that's not spread is a faith that's almost dead. A faith that's not spread is a faith that's almost dead. Why? Because the faith is good news. The gospel is good news. And if it's not spread, guess what? It's no longer news. If we don't spread it, we don't really believe it. We go to Our Lady. We join in her joy. We have the wonderful tradition of the Regina Celli during the Easter season to replace the Angelus as our noonday prayer. And in the Regina Celli, we just cheer Our Lady on. Rejoice, Queen of Heaven. Rejoice. We keep telling Our Lady, be happy. Rejoice. He's risen. Telling her to do something that she's already doing. <laughs> right? Like, you go, girl. Right? Go for it. Great. Keep going. Be happier. And she turns around and says to us, you rejoice too. You're my children. He's your brother. He's your God. And indeed, he is risen. Alleluia. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations which you have communicated to me. In this meditation, I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. In the rain to thing he can't repair Lord, how many crosses can you bear? 